Thank you, worship team. And good morning again, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 11. Uh, Mark chapter 11, we are continuing our series called None Like Him. So we're walking through the historical account of Jesus' life and ministry as Mark tells us in his gospel. And so we're looking at this very fast-paced uh, biography, if you will, that Mark wrote about Jesus with from event to event, showing us the character of Jesus, showing us exactly who he is, his exclusivity, and how no one else in the history of the world has been quite like him. No one has been anything like him. And so we're continuing today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 11. And if you don't have a Bible, that's all right. You can read along on the screens with us in just a minute. But before we get into that, let's pray and uh, ask the Lord to bless his word this morning. Jesus, again, we just thank you for being who you are, for being our Lord and our Savior. And God, I pray that today, as we open up your word, that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak truth into our hearts. Lord, show us what it is we need to know about who you are, about who we are, and Lord, what must take place for us to know you and for us to live for you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You know, parades are a big part of our culture uh, here in America. We have, of course, the big Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York City. We've got the Rose Bowl Parade out in California. We have the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Chicago and other places. In fact, when a professional sports team like my Atlanta Braves won the World Series last year, there was a big parade through Atlanta celebrating that championship. In fact, we're going to have a Mother's Day Parade today out in the park. I'm just kidding. We're not. Um, <laughs> but growing up, here's the thing. <clears throat> when I was a kid, so I grew up in a small town uh, in South Georgia, and the Christmas parade was a big deal in my hometown, let me tell you, okay? Because one reason it was a big deal is because all the churches would, I say all the churches, a lot of the churches would uh, put a float together, a Christmas float, and just go all out because there was a competition, you know what I mean? And so our church, you know, my, today's Mother's Day, so just let me say, Mom, I love you if you're watching out there. Uh, <laughs> She lives in Georgia, but, um, you know, she would take this very seriously, okay? So she would head up our Christmas float, and it was a big deal. I mean, all decked out with lights and angels and shepherds and whatever, right? And so there would be a competition every year, and it was, it was a little cutthroat, to be honest with you. Um, I don't know how much Christian character was always shown in our Christmas parades, but, you know, as silly as some of the stuff was in our, in our little small town in this big, giant parade, I mean, they would shut down the streets, people all around the county would come and they would line up on the sides of the streets. And, and as silly as some of the stuff was that we did in the content of the parade, you know, everybody was just so happy. Like everybody was so happy. It was such a joyful time for the community. And in a way, I think it was almost like a little escape from reality. For those couple of hours in our nostalgia, we were just so happy and it almost seemed like nothing could go wrong unless a train came through the middle of town and separated the floats, which was, you know, a problem, a small town problem, right? But it was just such a special time. And even looking back on it, you know, it's, it's fond memories. Well, today's story, we're going to see a big parade. Everybody's happy. Everyone's excited. But the problem with this parade in Mark chapter 11, 
was the people watching on the sides of the street, it wasn't an escape from reality for them. As we're going to see, ultimately, it was a rejection of reality. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Here's the context for you. Jesus and his disciples are about to enter into Jerusalem, which is the religious capital in the first century for the Jewish people. But it's not just another day, right? It's Passover week. You see, Passover week was a huge celebration for the Jews because it commemorated when God delivered them from Egyptian slavery so many years before. And they had been very faithful to observe this, uh, this celebration of, of God delivering them from the oppression of Egypt. So you have literally hundreds of thousands of pilgrims making their way into Jerusalem during this week from all over Palestine and other provinces of the Roman Empire. It was a big deal. So the population of the city would swell during this week and you can only imagine the crowds, right? Like you think Disney World is bad, just imagine less strollers and more livestock, okay? That's, that's essentially the size of the crowd you're dealing with in the streets. So in Mark chapter 11 then, we're gonna read this story and see this parade. But we're gonna see much more was going on than what seems to be on the surface. So let's read one through 11, Mark chapter 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. So we'll stop right there for a second. This was, this was probably prearranged by Jesus. Perhaps these were some of his friends in Bethany. We know he had uh, close friends there and obviously he has a plan of some kind and he needs this colt and Matthew and John and their accounts of this same story tell us that this colt was actually a young donkey. So this is a young donkey here, verse seven. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. So a parade or a procession is forming, right? Jesus' fame has grown tremendously throughout the region and, and because of his miracles and the things he has done, people are excited. They're excited for this person, this, this miracle worker to enter into their city, especially on this great celebratory week of Passover. In fact, they give him here what would have been considered a very kingly or royal welcome. Verse nine, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. 
So why are these people so excited for Jesus to be riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? What are they anticipating? And what is Jesus doing in all of this? Well, you can really look at this story today from two different vantage points. On one hand, we're going to see what was actually happening in reality. But on the other hand, we're going to see what the people thought was happening. So first, I want to talk about what the people thought was happening when Jesus rode before them. The people thought that their freedom was being inaugurated. So these crowds there in Jerusalem, obviously many of them had heard of Jesus by this point. They had heard of his miracles or maybe they had experienced them or seen them themselves. They had seen his compassion on the weak and the poor. So they're shouting, Hosanna! And that word means save us, save us, blessed one, save us. And now why are they shouting save us? Save us from what? Well, in the first century uh, Palestine, they were a province of the Roman Empire. You see, the Jews had struggled for many, many years to gain their own freedom and their own independence. In fact, ever since they were delivered from Egypt, truthfully, it was a long, hard battle for them over that course of time. So you have a long history of struggles for Israel and Judah trying to gain freedom, trying to live from underneath, or trying to get out from underneath the oppression of neighboring countries who were more strong, are stronger and more powerful than them. And the one bright spot, the one bright spot on the radar is when David was king. You see, David's monarchy, Israel was strong. Israel was united. And so in this sense of, a, of nostalgia, when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem in this parade, they're thinking back to what used to be with King David. If we could only get back to that point, man, we would be set. Our lives would be so much easier. We'd have so much more wealth. We'd have so much more just means to all these wonderful things that we want and we think would make us happy. And so Jesus riding into town, when they are yelling, save us, I want you to understand that there is no sense of spiritual salvation in their minds. They are strictly speaking, save us from the Romans. Save us from the Roman Empire who is oppressing us. We want to be independent. We want our freedom as a nation. Save us, Jesus, from these, these things. So when they say blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, you see what they're talking about. They're thinking the Messiah would restore that kingdom and that they would win political independence finally. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus is that long-awaited Messiah, that anointed one of God. Maybe he is their political savior. In fact, the palm branches, John in his account of this says that those, those leafy branches were palm branches. And that's very significant. You see, the palm branch was a symbol of Jewish nationalism. So them waving palm branches is the equivalent of someone waving their country's flag in a parade. And what better time than the Passover for this to happen? The celebration of their ancestors' delivery from Egyptian slavery. Maybe now Jesus will be the Savior who saved them from Rome. So you see now, from the vantage point of the people in the crowd, 
They thought that Jesus was coming into town to overthrow the Romans. Maybe, just maybe, everything they've ever wanted politically and nationally is about to happen, and maybe Jesus can deliver that. The second vantage point, though, we see is not the people, not the crowds, but God's. From God's vantage point, we see his mission is unfolding, as it has been since the creation of time. See, what was actually happening at that parade? You see, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, in the midst of this huge, enthusiastic crowd, he's not doing it to attract attention just for the sake of a show. He's not catering to their false expectations. So what is he doing then? You see, Jesus is on a mission. He is on a mission sent by God the Father, and he has almost reached his destination, Jerusalem, where he will do what it is going to take to reverse the curse of sin on an entire planet. You know, up until this point in our study through Mark, the first 10 chapters covered about a span of about three years. And chapters 11 through 16 cover the span of one week. What is Mark telling us? He is telling us that everything has been working to this point. Everything since the beginning of time has been pressing on, has been moving forward. God has been unfolding his plans to redeem humanity, and it's all coming to a head. It's all coming to a point this week. This is the week. Passover week in Jerusalem around 33 AD. This is where it will happen. So this event this parade, this trial, the execution of Jesus, it must be a public matter. It must be a public event because the Jewish people needed to see who the true Messiah was and what he really came to do. So their false expectations can be dispelled. Jesus has been proclaiming and teaching about the kingdom of God now for about three years. And so now it's time to show them what the king of that kingdom is really like. So he rides into Jerusalem. But as the people are going to learn throughout the week, it's not the king they would expect. There's no military marching behind him. Where, is the, where are the weapons? If they're going to overthrow the Romans, where are the weapons? Where are the soldiers? There's no royal robes. There's no trumpets blasting. He's not even on a war horse. He's just on a donkey. But we know. They didn't know. But we know. That he will secure victory. The victory, though, is over our greatest enemy. Sin and death. And in the midst of this Passover celebration with lambs being slaughtered everywhere around Jerusalem, blood literally flowing in the streets and in the alleys, there is the great reminder that only blood can pay for sin. And that's the context that Jesus is riding into. It's not just another parade. But what can we learn from this? I mean, what do you take from that? And we understand the, the mistake that the people made in that first century of misidentifying who Jesus really was, but how does this apply to us in the 21st century? What can we look at this story and see and say, you know, we need to think about this in our own lives? 
And I think we see from the crowd's reaction and, and on through the week what happened, I think we see three things to guard against. There's three things that we must guard our hearts against by example of looking to this story. Number one is this, self-serving motives. Self-serving motives. You know, it's amazing how the people praising Jesus that day, that day could be, it's amazing how they could be so right and yet so wrong at the same time, you know? I mean, notice that everything they're saying is true. Jesus is the Messiah. He has come to deliver his people. Blessed is the one who has come in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us, yes. These people know all the right lingo. They know all the right jargon. They know all the right religious terms. They're even praising the right person. It's not like they're worshiping a false god. They're praising Jesus, the Son of God. But for all the wrong reasons. To them, Jesus is just a means to an end. He's a means for them to achieve political power, to reestablish their prominence in the nation and in the world, to help them maintain all the things that they want in their culture that think make them happy. We call those things idols. And I wonder, is it possible for us to treat Jesus that way today? Can we know all the right religious terms and lingo? Can we come to church and praise Jesus with our lips, but all the while in our hearts, truly, we're just using him as a means to some other end? We don't want Jesus for Jesus. We want Jesus to give us something. And so we put forth the praise, we put forth the show, we speak the right words in hopes that he will grant us what we want. I think Christians have to guard against this. I think we have to do that as a whole in society at large. I think we have to do it on a personal level. I mean, just think about the story. The Jewish people of that day, what did they really want? They just wanted political greatness. That's what they wanted. Now, I'm not saying that all of their motivations were impure. Maybe they wanted a, a nice family and maybe they wanted a safe place to live. And those are good things that we should work for, absolutely. But ultimately, they didn't care about Jesus dying for their sin. They wanted him to deliver them from the Romans. And I just wonder... I mean, do, we not, do you not think that many politicians in America identify themselves as a Christian only because they know that's what they have to say to get your vote? When in reality, their lives so, show no fruit of dying to self and following the Lord Jesus as their savior. There's no fruit in their lives and yet they use all these words and these lingo and this jargon to convince us to vote for them. Shame on us if we are so easily fooled. Shame on us if we dilute the word of God and his gospel and his death for sin in exchange for some kind of political power. On a more personal level, maybe your ultimate goal is to have the appearance of a, just a nice, well-rounded life. And so politics isn't really your thing. It's really just more that you want your image, your image 
to supersede the image of others. And we know how that works, right? I mean, nobody ever posts a bad picture of themselves on Facebook, right? I mean, you would never dare post a picture of yourself with your hair not looking just right or your eyes closed, you know? Like we're so concerned about our public persona, our image, right? We go to great lengths with the clothes we wear and the cars we drive and the houses we buy and the vacations we take and the pictures we post. We go to great lengths to put forth this idea that we have it all put together. And sometimes if we're not careful and we don't guard against it, we can use Jesus and Christianity and church attendance and whatever else you roll into that package as a means to making ourselves look like we've got it all together. Well, look at me. I'm a good church going person. I'm religious. I know all the right words, right? I sang the words today. I put a couple of dollars in the offering plate. I mean, look at me. Look how Jesus is making me look so good. May we be careful. Corporately, as a body of Christ in this world, may we be careful as individuals to guard against the danger of using Jesus for our self-serving motives. Do we want Jesus for Jesus? Or do we just want what he can give us? Number two, I think we see a danger here, and that's circumstantial devotion. So the first danger we see in the crowd is self-serving motives, but secondly, circumstantial devotion. You know, I'll admit it, I grew up a very fair-weather Atlanta Falcons fan. Um, And what I mean by that is I didn't really care too much about the Falcons at all until they went to the Super Bowl a few years ago. I went to Publix and I bought a Falcons balloon. Who does that? I did because I just thought that I wanted to show that I was a fan. And so I had a Falcon shirt, the one Falcon shirt I own, I wore it. I had a balloon in our house and me and Chrissy watched the Super Bowl. I just thought I was throwing myself a Super Bowl party, it's sad. But now here in Jacksonville, let's be clear, there's only one type of weather, right? So I mean, we're used to losing, you know, it's not really, there is no fair weather fan. We're just bad weather fans all the time, right? We're working on that. I have pledged my allegiance to the Jaguars, just so you know, I've, I've I jumped ship from the Falcons. So. But think about these people and how fair weather they were. They start the week off shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us, Jesus. And then when things don't pan out like they thought they would, they end the week shouting, crucify him. This isn't the first time Jesus had experienced a swift and fickle change of devotion towards him. It's not the first time. In fact, in John chapter six, I think this is fascinating. After Jesus fed the 5,000, they were super excited about him. He had given them everything they wanted. He had fed their families. He had exhibited great power and they thought that he was gonna take care of them forever. And so look what they did. In John chapter six, verses 14 and 15, He feeds 5,000 people plus, that's just the men, so women and children included, you're talking maybe 15 to 20,000 people. And look at this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus does something great for them and they say, oh, Let's make him our king right now. Let's do it. Let's do this now. 
when we've got the momentum. But then after Jesus started explaining that he was the true bread of heaven and that you must eat his flesh and drink his blood, which they didn't understand. Of course, he's speaking metaphorically. They didn't get it. He was referring to the cross. He was referring to the persecution that may come. And look at this. When Jesus starts explaining who he really is in John 6, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Hosanna, crucify him. It's easy to join the crowd. It's easy to shout along with them and be a part of the parade when it's popular when it's easy, when you're influenced by others to do that. But as soon as Jesus doesn't meet a need we like or that we just discussed, as soon as Jesus is, is not a, no longer a means to our end, our agenda, the life we have set for ourselves, as soon as he doesn't help us get to that, whatever that little kingdom is that we're building, that we're the king of, as soon as he's no longer useful, essentially we join the crowds and say, crucify him. Not that we would actually use those words. Of course we wouldn't say that. We're not that brave. But functionally, functionally that's exactly what we do. We turn away from him like these so-called disciples in John 6. And we must be careful to not let our devotion to Jesus be based on our circumstances or how we are feeling in a particular season of life or what everyone else is saying or what everyone else is doing. You know, I wonder how many in the crowd that day were praising Jesus and then later that week were shouting that he should be crucified because everyone else was doing it. And they weren't really sure where they stood with Jesus. Their faith was not grounded and rooted in the word of God. They didn't have daily communion with him through prayer. And so they were easily swayed. Even Peter, one of his own disciples, let the circumstances dictate his devotion to Jesus in the moment by denying him. How do we avoid that? How do we avoid being so easily fooled? How do we avoid being so easily swayed? I think the answer is to marvel at the gospel. To look at who Jesus is and what he did. He was the creator of all things. He had the riches of heaven. And he gave up all those things to come to this nasty, smelly, sin-stricken earth. And he lived in poverty. His mother rode on a donkey on the night, on the way to have him. He rides in a donk, on a donkey into Jerusalem. The people don't understand who he is. They reject him. They kill him unjustly. Why would someone do that? Why would someone put themselves through that? Because the king of all kings was really in control the whole time. He was doing something not for himself, but for you. The king who gave up his life, gave up his life for his subjects, for his people. That's a king worth following. That's a king worth obeying. How can we not marvel at who Christ is and what he went through 
voluntarily for us because of his great love for us. He's worth following in every single circumstance you find yourself in. When the doubts and the fears and the anxieties are heavy on your mind at night when you're trying to go to sleep, remind yourself of who you are, purchased by the blood of Jesus. You belong to the Father, the Creator, the God of the universe. He owns you. You are His. And whatever you are going through, know that Jesus identifies with you because He has gone through it as well. And He knows your weakness and He knows your heart. See, it's a, it, the issue is posture. It's where we posture and position ourselves before the Lord. If we turn away from Him to something else in this world and not posture ourselves before Him with reverence and awe and marvel at His gospel and what He did for us. It's not that we're, God doesn't expect you to clean up your life and get everything perfect and look nice and, and well-rounded. That's not what he's looking for. He's just looking for people who posture themselves before him in humility and say, Jesus, I cannot. I cannot handle this. I cannot do this. Would you save me? Would you give me life? Those are the people he has come to save. We must guard against circumstantial devotion. And lastly, number three, I think we have to guard against a narrow view of God's mission. You know, the Jewish people, they were so concerned about their political freedom and from Rome, their freedom, that they weren't, they weren't concerned about the rest of the world. I mean, they completely missed the scope of Jesus' mission and his ministry. It was for the entire world. It wasn't just for them. Yes, they would receive it first, but ultimately it was to the ends of the earth. Because everything, not just in the book of Mark, but since the Garden of Eden, everything has been moving toward this week, that moment in history. If they could only look at the scriptures that they already had in front of them and realize that Jesus was the promised rescuer, the deliverer who would one day make all things right. It started in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15. As God was pronouncing judgment on the first humans who sinned and rebelled against him and on the serpent who, were, who was tempting them, God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, Satan, and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is God saying? Before Adam and Eve even got out of the Garden of Eden, God already had a plan. He had a plan to redeem humanity from the sin that has separated us from God. He had a plan for all of us to be redeemed by one of our own. An offspring of Adam and Eve, a descendant, a human. You see, when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, if only the people had seen, this is it. We can't believe it's happening before our eyes. This is the offspring. Fully God and fully man, the Messiah has come. And everyone, everyone is invited to this parade. But the people in Jerusalem that day were so self-centered, they couldn't see further than their own agenda. They couldn't see the grand and great mission of God 
that was permeating throughout the entire world. Their nationalistic idolatry kept them from seeing the needs of the lost world around them. You see, God's kingdom has no borders. God's kingdom has no boundaries. The gospel is the only thing that can bring people of different cultural backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses, different ethnicities. The gospel is the only thing that can bring all of us together for one common purpose, for one common goal, to worship the true king. Do you see how powerful and how beautiful and how inclusive the gospel of Jesus Christ is? Nothing else in the world would bring so many different people together. The world tries from time to time. We see it. We see the efforts for unity. We see the efforts for people to come together for one goal or one purpose. But nothing like the blood of Jesus Christ will bond us together. And it's not just for us. It's for the whole world. The crowds that day they were limiting their own joy and they didn't even know it. They were too easily satisfied. But you know, there would be another procession later that week. Jesus would carry his cross up the path to Golgotha. You know, in ancient Rome, when a general would secure a victory, win a victory over another nation, another enemy, they would come to Rome with their captives and they would parade them through the streets. And the people would cheer, would cheer for the greatness of Rome and for these warriors who defeated this enemy. And now look at this enemy in their shame, parading them through the streets. The Bible tells us that that is exactly what Jesus did to Satan and his evil realm on the cross. It was not death in the shameful sense with no victory in mind. It was surely victory for Christ. Colossians 2 verse 15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus, while taking our shame, was actually putting evil to shame, was putting Satan and his realm to shame. He triumphs over them. He parades them as the victor. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Do you see that? as we rejoice in the gospel, as the gospel takes root in our hearts and our lives and it permeates who we are and it changes our character and then what does the world see in us? They don't see you, they don't see your efforts to build your own kingdom and your own agenda, they see Christ. They see the fragrance of him in you everywhere. That's the parade, that's the procession we need to be a part of. So with the grand view of God's worldwide mission, we are participants in that until the day that it is completed. And speaking of that day, 
On that day, there will be another parade, if you will, a procession. Because Jesus will return one day to this earth. But next time, he will not be on a donkey. He will return as a great and powerful warrior king. Look at this. In Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, says, the apostle John says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is a parade like no other. (laughs) We get to be a part of that when the rightful owner of this universe stakes his claim, plants his flag, and says, these, these are mine. And no one can snatch them from my hand. Man, what victory we have in Jesus. What power there is in his name. May we not be so easily swayed. May we not be so attached to this temporary world to think that anything in this world, large scale, small scale, whatever it may be, that anything would give us the joy and the happiness and the victory that only Christ can give. I just want to encourage you this morning, if your heart if your heart belongs to something else in this world besides the Lord Jesus himself, turn away from it. As the disciples heard the gospel, they turned away. In John chapter six, I'm asking you to turn to. Turn to him and confess the weakness of your heart. Confess, maybe you already are a believer, you are a Christian. Confess to the Lord these three things that we must guard against. Confess to him now if you have self-serving motives and you are using him in some way to accomplish your own world that you're building. Use him if you have mistreated him in that way and your devotion to him is just circumstantial based on whether you're feeling happy or not. Whether times are good or not or you think you're blessed or not. He is a king worth following in every season of life. So let's be honest with him now if we have not done that. And let's ask him to be the king of our lives. We're not the grand marshal of the parade. May we fall in line behind the one who is and truly submit to him every single day. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we're so thankful that you are 
our king. Lord, that means that you have authority. It means that you are our ruler. It means that we must obey. We must submit ourselves to you in our entirety, Lord, our whole lives, our whole hearts. God, forgive us for the unbelief in our hearts. Forgive us for where we are holding something back as if it's our precious little thing that we want to control and we want to manipulate, Lord, and we're not giving it to you. We're not truly surrendering control to you. Jesus, may we not mistake you for something that you are not. Lord, you are not a genie who just comes out and grants us wishes. Lord, you are a savior who's given up yourself so that we could find ourselves in you. Eternal life, salvation, transformation. So thank you for being our king. May we praise you with pure motivation, with sincere joy. And may we look outside the walls of this building to a lost and hurting world and not limit the scope of your mission. May we see the world around us needing, not a political savior, not some kind of genie in a bottle. Lord, may we look to the rest of this world and see their need for blood to cover their sins. For a true victor, a true warrior king who one day will make all things right and true. Jesus, let us be a sweet fragrance of that truth as we submit to you as our king. It's in your name we pray. Amen.